This is Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears, and I'm joined as always by Federico Vitici. Hi, Fraser. How are you? School holidays have started, Federico. What can I say? Easter holidays are here. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's the great time of the year. <laughs> it um, certainly is. Well, I feel there's there's an irony in this week's episode that you're mm-hmm. happy that it's a it's a holiday, but we're still gonna talk about school and education. Yes, I'm not done show. with school just yet. <laughs> still gotta talk about it because th- there was an Apple event um, mm-hmm. earlier this this week, and it it was an education event which a lot of people are annoyed about. They're saying that it was a boring <laughs> event. I mean, we knew that this mm-hmm. was gonna happen right there on the invitation. Uh, to the press, uh, Apple said we have some news for um, teachers and students and schools. So they it was pretty it much <laughs> pretty much set yeah. that it was going to be an education <laughs> event. Yeah, who who can be mad about that? You know, they held it in a school in Chicago, uh, and they called it a field trip. So what were you expecting? You know, somebody's yeah. going in there expecting the new iPhone SE. Come on, it's not going to happen. So. Yeah, but now, I mean, I suppose one of the things to say, Federico, is that uh, this is the second major Apple education event that Apple have held, mm-hmm. but it's been quite a long time since the last one, and I hope it's not the same length of time since the next one. Uh, but the last one was, was 2012 in New York, uh, which is like six years ago, and that was when iTunes U and iBooks Author uh, first came out and, and were announced to the world. Uh, and of course... There hasn't really been a specific one since. The only other major sort of education-related event was WWDC 2016 when Swift Playgrounds and the Learn to Code curriculum was announced, uh, which was a great thing, of course. I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but just uh, this is only the second education-specific event Apple's held in quite a long time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny to, to think about the fact that it was six years ago. Uh, for some reason, it doesn't feel... Like uh, like six, six years ago to me, but 2012, it's before iOS 7. Yep. It's before uh, all these new products like the Apple Watch and the AirPods. It's it's a yeah. long time in Apple history to I mean, go back it, to. It's so long ago that iTunes, I used to describe it with that, that um, iTunes U was designed in Harvard Mahogany and iBooks was Ikea Birch because they had those uh, sort it's of true. very, you know, genuinely looked like the Harvard Library or something, you know, very dark wood pattern on, on the app. Um, yeah. I actually quite like that, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. we, we have what we have today. But well, let for, me uh, let me ask you yeah. this: um, uh, what what's happened uh, to those major announcements like iTunes U and iBooks Other uh, in the past six years? Was the was all the hype uh, worth it in retrospect? Well, I mean, I have to say that the iBooks Author the iBooks Author announcement was very much. Uh, it was two parts, really. iBooks Author, the app, was one of it. But the other part was the idea of these multi-touch textbooks that authors, publishers could create and could be sold to schools. But I think one of the issues that happened with that, well, there were two, really, I think. One was that uh, publishers didn't really adopt it very much. And secondly, Apple's purchase and deployment model for books has always been different from apps, and it has never changed. And what happens is when you buy apps for a school, you can buy the app, put it on a student iPad, and then when the student leaves the school, you can take the app license back and put it on another iPad. But the rule for books has always been that when you assign a book purchase, a volume purchased book to a student, 
you can never take it back again. So the problem has always been, you know, buying these books, giving them out and then losing them. And schools are used to buying like paper books and keeping them for many years and giving them to different students every year. Whereas with the electronic books, they were forced to give them away every year. Now, the the way that Apple handled that was that they said, well, these multi-touch textbooks are going to be maximum $14.99 which in America seemed like a great price because uh, I don't know how many people really know this worldwide, but in America, a school textbook can cost up to $200, sometimes more. Whereas in many other countries, um, I'm sure in Italy, Federico, and certainly in Scotland, we pay like between eight and 10 pounds for a paper textbook. So mm. $14.99 is actually a price increase for most of the world. But yeah. I think what, what the strategy there really was, was the idea that, well, if we don't have to buy a $200 textbook, we could buy several fourteen ninety nine textbooks uh, to make up the difference and then put the saving towards buying the iPad in the first place. So it, it was a kind of unique American thing. And, and I slightly think that Apple all the way through has a bit too America-centric a view of what education actually is because mm. that whole value proposition wasn't really true for anywhere that wasn't America. Um, but they were trying to kind of make a, a cost-benefit calculation that would appeal to school administrators there and it didn't really pay off. That's a, that's a good point. The sort of the America centric uh, worldview that that's interesting to me. I wanted to ask you. Um, so in Italy, the school system um, it's really different from the American one, where um, in in America the concept of a class is a group of students they that they go to different courses, for lack of a better word. So mm -hmm. there's the math class, there's the history class, whereas in Italy. Uh, And, and those students in America, they, they always change, it's my understanding, because maybe you want to go to history, and, but maybe someone else doesn't want to go, so they go to maths or, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but in Italy, uh, the way that it works from elementary to middle school to high school is for five years, you stay within the same class, the same group of people, uh, same students, and you just change uh, teachers throughout the course okay. of, a, of a school day. Yeah. So it's always the same group of people. You never change class. You never change location. It's always the same 20, 30 students. And every hour or every couple of hours, the teacher comes in and changes the subject. Oh, okay. That's different. Yeah. Is that true all the way up to when you leave school? Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's the same in elementary school, um, high school, and up until you graduate high school when okay. you're 19. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. See, the, the Scottish model is different again, where we have primary and secondary. So we only have two phases of education, whereas the Americans have elementary school, middle school and, and high school. Um, and in Scotland, you, you'd have that experience that you've just described for the first seven years of your education. And then the first half of your secondary education, you would be with the same group of people, but you would move around classes. And then in the upper secondary school, you would be with similar groups of people, but you would move to subjects and some people in your class would go to different subject because they chose, mm. say they chose music and you chose art, for example, you would go to art and they would go to music. So it's a mixture of the two in Scotland, but it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting one because it has, that has an impact on whether or not mobile technology is very attractive to you or not. You know, if you're in a fixed classroom, then having the resources in the classroom is is a reasonable way to do it. Whereas, you know, for us and, and suppose for America too, uh, the student taking the device with them is quite an attractive model because it saves uh, having specialist equipment in every single room in the school. Right. That's, that's why I wanted to ask you because it feels to me like uh, the different 
contexts of whether it's always the same 25 people in the same classroom or it's 25 people that change class and walk around school. I feel yeah. like it, it fundamentally changes the way that you manage these devices. Yeah, because in, in the single classroom model, it's much more practical to have desktop computers or laptops exactly. or, or a cart or something that sits in the school or in the classroom. But when you're moving around, having those devices you know, having a big trolley of computers follow you around the school is something that's not really practical. So yeah, it, 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 that bit changes the game a little bit as well. All right. Okay. All right. So um, should we move on to the actual announcements? Uh, yeah, Frederick, I should maybe declare my background in this perhaps a little more fully oh, for yes. people who uh, yes. who don't quite know the backstory of what I've done with iPad in school, but I've been, been a teacher for more than 10 years now. And uh, we've, in my school, the school that I work in, we went one-to-one -one with iPad back in 2010. Uh, and sort of so far as we know, we were maybe the first school in the whole world to do that. Uh, and that was my project back in the summer of 2010, trying to get enough of the original iPad off the, off the shipping system at Apple to come to our school and, and go one-to-one -one with that. Um, and we've, we've refreshed our iPads uh, twice since then. So we had the original iPad, we had the third gen, sorry, the fourth generation iPad. Uh, that was the first one with the lightning connector. And then we're now on the 9.7 inch iPad Pro. And in summer 2019, we'll, we'll be refreshing again to whatever we refreshed to at that point. So we've got quite an experience in, and I've been the systems administrator for all of that. And also a teacher in that system for, well, this is getting on for the end of our eighth school year being a one-to-one -one iPad school. So I kind of have a background in this and, and it's something that I'm, I'm always interested to see, you know, what are, what are Apple going to do for us next? And that was the kind of context in which I come to this education event quite with quite a lot of expectation, uh, some of which was met and most of which perhaps wasn't, but we can talk about that in more detail as we go on. All right. So the, the major announcement, I guess, it would be the new iPad, which yeah. is not an iPad Pro. It's the sixth generation iPad, the standard baseline model. Yeah. And I feel like this, this one is interesting also from a consumer standpoint. Um, the, major, the, the major additions to this iPad would be the Apple Pencil support. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a new version of the Apple Pencil. It's still the same one, the original one from 2015. But now it works with the iPad in the non-pro uh, version. And also there's an A10 processor inside which is not the a10x from the from the second gen ipad pros from 2017 mm -hmm. and that means it's i guess it must be running uh, a variation of the a10 fusion chip from the iphone 10 but on the inside the ipad um which means that compared to the iPad Pros from last year, you get worse graphics performance. And uh, I, saw, I saw some benchmarks, especially the metal um, benchmarks, the metal mm -hmm. API. It's considerably worse than, uh, than the iPad Pro from last year, which means that, I don't know, but if you're using some kind of advanced 3D modeling app or even AR kit, you may be getting worse performance on this iPad compared to what you would get on an iPad Pro from 2017. Yeah, it's probably not the greatest gaming iPad that's ever been built. No. But I think in, in general, uh, for for general purpose use, uh, I yeah. think it's perfectly fine. Um, so, it, you know, we weren't a couple of years ago seeing all oh, this A10 is really slow or anything but um, I think because the pencil support is such a kind of key component and I was yeah. quite relieved actually to see that come Federico because I'll tell you why is that 
in our school, we we have provided the 9.7 iPad Pro from 2016 to our, to most of our students. Some have got iPad Mini 4s. But the thing is that some students had gone and bought themselves an Apple Pencil. So I was sort of sitting during our deployment going, uh, hang on, if, if Apple Pencil support doesn't come to this low-cost iPad that we will definitely be getting next time, I'm going to have 10 to 15 families who have spent £100 on a stylus and I'm going to give them an iPad that makes that useless now. So I was a little bit concerned uh, that we wouldn't get Apple Pencil support in time for us to adopt, to, to maybe take a step down from the Pro to these uh, 6th, 5th and 6th generation iPads. So uh, Apple has come along and saved me there a little bit. Mm. Uh, and mm. so those kids will keep their investment into the new iPad, even if we don't deploy an iPad Pro in the next round, which I'm pretty sure we won't, given the way prices have gone over the past couple of years. So so the parents went out on their own and they bought the pencil. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I would say about 10% of the students who have an iPad Pro have got a pencil. It's not okay. it's not hugely penetration in the school, but it's it, it's enough that people would kind of be like, Argh. right. But you know, do you get any any sort of management tools for the pencil, or it's just the student comes in and pops in the pencil and it's paired, and there's nothing you you need to control? Uh, no, that there isn't any. There's no management oversight of that at all. But what's quite interesting, there is management control of Bluetooth pairing on iPads deployed through education, uh, and you can set a profile that says. Uh, don't let the student turn Bluetooth on or off, which is mm. is a useful tool. Um, but the Apple Pencil actually overrides that. So I have this thing where sometimes, oh, okay. you know, like at Christmas time, people will get Bluetooth headphones or something and they ask me, uh, you know, Mr. Spears, can I put my headphones on, on my school iPad? And I don't have a problem with anybody doing that, but I have to sort of exclude them from the, the profile, let them pair it and then put the profile back on. It takes a minute or two and it's fine. But the Apple Pencil actually overrides that. So it, it pairs in a way that's not the same as the Bluetooth pairing and settings. Um, it sort of overrides that and students can pair and unpair Apple Pencils separately from doing things like keyboards and headphones, uh, which mm. are controlled by uh, the Bluetooth uh, configuration profile that we use. Interesting. Uh, this is not the only Apple Pencil-related news from this mm. event. So there's a basic Apple Pencil, and it's got the same mm, features from... Um, from the iPad Pro, it's the same pencil. It works the same way. Uh, and Apple showed a bunch of apps uh, with all the pencil-related APIs. It's all the same, and it's great news. But Apple has also worked with Logitech, which is called Logi in Europe now. It's called Logi, not mm -hmm. Logitech. Anyway, they teamed up with them to offer the Crayon. And the Crayon is this Apple Pencil-like stylus that is designed for younger pupils for it's got this kid friendly chunky flat shaped design um, and he uses apple pencil technology inside with some asterisks meaning uh it doesn't use bluetooth it uses some kind of single frequency pairing mode um, yeah that's a bit of a mystery how that works it's not yeah yeah yet. And it, and it only works with the, with this new iPad. It doesn't work with the iPad Pro. It doesn't work with the fifth generation iPad. It's only for the new iPad, the 2018 one. And also, it doesn't support the full feature set of the Apple Pencil, meaning that in addition to the different wireless communication protocol, it doesn't support pressure sensitivity. It only supports tilt, so you can angle... Uh, the stylus when you're drawing and you could change the thickness of a line but you cannot apply different levels of levels of pressure um, and Apple worked with Logitech to offer this product which um, can be recharged 
with lightning, but it doesn't have a male lightning connector. You cannot pop this into an iPad to instantly recharge. You need to plug a cable into the stylus itself, which, I don't know, may be impractical. Um, also, it's got an LED indicator that uh, tells you when the crayon is ready to be connected to an iPad, and also it flashes differently depending on battery life. But otherwise, it, support, it uses all the same pencil APIs, you know, the, for example, the predictive touch API on iOS. It uses the same, um, you know, the display scans at the same rate when you're drawing on the screen, and it works with the same apps that support the Apple Pencil, such as Office or, you know, New This Week iWork. What yeah. do you think of the fact that Apple is teaming up with a, with another company f- to make a, a kid-friendly stylus that's only available in the United States, that is only available for education, and that, it all, and that only supports this iPad, and that it's, it's not made by Apple, but Apple work with them? Yeah, I actually suspect, Federico, that more of it's made by Apple than they're prepared to admit. I... My, I heard some rumors recently that what this crayon is is actually literally an Apple Pencil in a different case <laughs> with some things turned off, right? Amazing. So, so the pressure sensitivity features are actually there, but they're disabled in software. And I think what this is, is this is, this is a market segmentation game that Apple are playing here, right? It's only available through the education channel, through Apple's own channel, which only really exists in the United States and only works with this low-cost pencil. So they're really working hard to protect that $40, $50 difference to the Apple Pencil. Because, um, you know, if you're an iPad Pro user, you're not going to buy a, a Logi Crayon. You've got to buy the, the $100 Apple Pencil. So um, I, I, th- I suspect it's actually, you know, probably an Apple Pencil inside. Um, but... I, the thing I like about it is that the lightning socket, you know, every classroom that has iPads has got lightning cables trailing all over the place. So being able to just, you know, go over and plug your crayon into a cable that's probably there already is, is a perfectly sensible thing to do. And it's much less likely that a student might break it off in, in the socket. Um, I, I haven't seen that happen in my school, but certainly, you know, the way the pencil sticks out, you know, adults, it's not a problem, even though people made fun of it when it first came out. But, you know, children in a busy classroom, the possibility of somebody knocking that and maybe snapping it, you know, reasonably high. So I, I'm curious about that. And I'm, I'm curious also about the question of how, how easy is it to pair and unpair mm. and repair this device with other ones? Because I've actually spotted in my school, sometimes like a student who's got an Apple Pencil, but they're not using it right now, might lend it to somebody else. And what they'll do, somebody who doesn't have the pencil, and they'll borrow it and they'll pair it temporarily with their iPad, use it for a little bit and then give it back to the student and then they'll repair it with their own iPad and so on. So I'm curious as to how this works with this crayon. And of course, the thing about wireless pairing as opposed to physical pairing is that when you try and you couldn't, for example, say, well, uh, right, right class, everybody turn on their crayons right now and then we'll pair them all because who's pairs with who's? And this is the same problem you have when you're trying to pair a set, a class set of Bluetooth keyboards with iPads, for example, is you've got to be like, nobody turn theirs on until I tell you right now. You turn on and pair it. Now you turn yours on and pair it. Now you t- and, and this is how it goes on is because, you know, which pencil am I pairing with kind of thing. So it'll be curious to see, but I suspect there's probably something to do with like very close proximity, like the Bluetooth mm. setup stuff that we use for Apple yeah. TV and yeah. so on. Yeah. You'll have to be within two inches of the iPad before it will, it will pair. So there's probably some proximity stuff going on there as well. 
Um, but yeah, I really like that product. And I think, you know, if I was looking at getting into, you know, pencil-based iPads in, in schools, I would be looking really hard at that rather than the Apple products. Hmm. Let's talk about storage uh, in a couple of ways. So yeah. first on the physical side, we got uh, 32 gig and 128 gigabyte options for yeah. the iPad. Um, what do you think about this? These are fine. This is absolutely great um, because the question really is whether you're doing a one-to-one iPad deployment or you're doing a shared iPad deployment. And for schools that are doing a 32 gig deployment and one-to-one, that's a perfectly good size for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen that in my school. We, we've got 32 gig iPad Pros. And what I've noticed is that it takes, you know, we, we deploy them uh, completely empty. We don't, we don't back up and restore between deployments. We use Google Drive to store anything we want permanently. And what we do is we deploy them absolutely empty. And then it takes the students 18 to 24 months to build up enough data that storage on their iPads actually becoming a problem. They have to do something about it. Uh, and then they can do a bit of work and they get through the third year without any major significant problems after that. But with a shared iPad deployment, what you need to do is you need to look at how much data is each user going to use and then how many users do I have per iPad. And what you really want to do is you want to try and size your iPad so that um, you don't have too many users trying to put too much data into too small a mm-hmm. pot, honestly. And they're actually, when you set up shared iPad, there are actually some lower limits. And I think it, I'm doing this number from memory, but I think you can't actually even turn on shared iPad for an iPad less than 32 gigabytes. It may even be 64 gigabytes. And the reason for that is because when a user logs out of a shared iPad system, their data stays on the iPad until it has to be ejected because somebody else has made too many big files. So 128 gig is a great size for maybe three to four users on an iPad, uh, maybe even five if you're not making a whole lot of stuff. So that's a great size for shared iPad. And, and if you divide the cost of the 128 gig iPad by three or four or five users, it starts to look quite affordable over, over time. Whereas if you're doing one-to-one, 32 gig is absolutely fine. So yeah, these are definitely the right sizes. Now let's talk about iCloud. Um, the big news for education this week is that Apple is giving uh, schools uh, an, a free upgrade from the free five gigabytes of, I, of iCloud storage to 200 gigabytes. It's a big yeah. jump. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of discussions going on about whether Apple should or should not uh, also do the same for regular consumers. But so far, uh, who, this who's is only saying they shouldn't? Who, who on earth in the world is saying that Apple should not do that? Well, you would be surprised. <laughs> Apart from the lawyers and the accountants, <laughs> you would be surprised by how many trolls I got on Twitter after linking on Mac stories that I also think this should be, you know, there should be uh, a free upgrade for regular users um people get upset when you when you say that apple is maybe doing something wrong or that they should do something differently people get upset uh, people on twitter can be upset you know what they call um, this stockholm syndrome <laughs> pretty much it's pretty much exactly yeah. that apple come um, and take some more money off me please i love it so much <laughs> what do you think of this uh this is a big jump it's not like they're giving you from five to twenty or from five yeah. to fifty from five to 200. Mm. I mean, it's a substantial increase, right? Uh, yeah. But I, th- I think that the challenge that remains for Apple, right, is that Google representatives walk into schools and they say, hey, unlimited storage on us for everybody. 
right? Okay. And <laughs> okay. And they genuinely mean it, right? I have I have something like three and a half terabytes of stuff in my school Google Drive account, and I know people in schools who have like ten terabytes of stuff on their school Google Drive, and they're doing that for free. Um, so it's not like unlimited star; it's unlimited, really unlimited. Um, so yeah, Apple's gone from five to two hundred, and I think, to be honest with you, that will it will solve a lot of problems in the short to medium term. Now we've we have got students who um, have maybe been four or five years in the same Apple ID. Um, actually, no, that's not true because we moved over everybody over to managed Apple IDs. So that was two years ago. So everybody started fresh two years ago with their Apple ID. But we we see with you know um, automatic backup of the device, and then in iOS 11, a new set up iOS 11 device defaults to iCloud Drive storage for all your iWork files, and it defaults to iCloud Photo Library being turned on by default, which means that as a student makes videos and photos, they get migrated up to the cloud, and that starts to eat in and eat in and eat into your iCloud storage limit, which is fine, that's how it's meant to work. But because we were bumping up against that five gig limit fairly quickly, what we found was that uh, you could get into a pathological situation on the iPad where the a student wasn't able to say make a new Keynote file because their iCloud storage was full because Keynote defaults to iCloud Drive and it was all full of backups and photos and then they couldn't even make a Pages document to do some work and that that was just really unacceptable you know that's this five gig limit is actually stopping me from using this very expensive device and that's not good enough um, so you, you can it, it puts the problem off for a couple of years and you know as we know Apple doesn't own all their own servers for iCloud some of it's on Azure some of it's on Google Cloud some of it was in AWS and I think Apple's actually got a bit of a scaling problem so I kind of understand why they might not have said unlimited right now but again rumors do come to me and one of the rumors is that this number is going up now that they've kind of been able to get it to happen the number can actually go up more easily than it could in the first place so yeah i think it solves a practical problem but i don't think it solves a marketing problem which is that google people get to come in and say unlimited and apple people have to say 200 gigs and when it comes to comparing those spec sheets for chromebooks and ipads in schools People are going to go, oh, well, Unlimited is quite a lot more than 200 gigs, isn't it? So yeah. let's go with that one, you know. So you've still got a marketing bullet point problem there. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Google Photos, that they mm. have no limits whatsoever. And yeah. you can use it for free. I mean, it's not the full-on, full-resolution, you know, original size, but it's good enough. And it's, it's unlimited good storage. Certainly it's good very, enough for schools. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Okay. So there's a there's a few more things that we need to discuss, but I think first we should take a break and thank our friends at Pingdom, Fraser. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom. If your website was down right now, if visitors couldn't access your content or couldn't click that all-important buy now button, how would you know? You wouldn't until it was too late. And that's why you need Pingdom. They give you the peace of mind you need. Pingdom will let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. They're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. They use more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. Start monitoring your site today. All Pingdom needs is a URL, and they take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash reallyfm right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you sign up, 
Use the code CANVAS at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and Relay FM. Apple Classroom is coming to the Mac. Wait. Does this does this matter to you? Is this important? Oh, this matters. This matters very significantly. Yeah, yeah, it, it does because um, the reason it matters is twofold. One, a lot of teachers, even in iPad schools, are still using their Mac. Secondly. Apple Classroom is an incredibly important app for Apple. It's probably one of the most important apps that Apple can show when they're trying to close an iPad deal in a school. And I've, I've done presentations with Classroom. Uh, last year I was in South Africa and I was doing an event with one of the Apple distributors in, in the uh, Western Cape. And we did an event in a school where we had maybe 50 or 60 teachers. And what we did was I I set up the lesson on the screen, the sort of kid on lesson for the for the students, which were actually teachers. And then I said, okay, open your iPads, uh, go into the classroom settings in preferences and join my class. I'm going to send you three files. You need to complete this task. And they all joined my class and I sent them with one tap. I sent them all these files and they were ready to go. And they were just blown away by that. It was incredible. And that was, Classroom is a tool that teachers have been looking for for quite a long time to just kind of manage and run a smooth iPad-based classroom. So yeah, it's really, really important for it to be on the Mac as well. And this ties into two other announcements. One of them is called is a new app called Schoolwork, and which works with a class kit, which is an API. And my basic understanding of this is that it's a system for third-party apps to integrate with this Schoolwork application, which I don't understand quite what it does. I guess it's a, it must be a management interface for teachers. And using the ClassKit API, third-party apps can receive uh, things like handouts and tests, and students can work in third-party apps, and then they can submit their work back to the Schoolwork system? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, this is one of my criticisms of, of the Apple event on Tuesday was that the actual details were pretty thin on the ground about mm. exactly what this is, exactly how it works. Uh, and I, I suspect the reason for that is it's quite far from finished. I mean, there was no demo of Schoolwork, for example, at all. And they mentioned other features that were not quite ready to ship yet either. So my understanding is that schoolwork is not even coming into beta until June, which means, you know, <laughs> who's, who's going to build their school on that this year? Okay. It's really not next school year, but the one after before this is going to be a major factor. But really what I think this is, right? And let's try not to get confused by terminology here because Apple and Google have both got a lot of different school apps, all with very similar sounding names. Apple Classroom is an application that you use on an iPad and now on a Mac as well to view the screens of iPads in your classroom and send files to them and get files back and do things like lock the screen and turn the volume down and stuff like that. It's also important for controlling a shared iPad deployment. Google has an app called Classroom as well, but it does a completely different thing and this is what's very unhelpful. Google Classroom is about setting assignments to students and sending them files and getting them back. Uh, and I think that schoolwork is actually going to be more analogous to Google Classroom than it is to anything that oh Apple's God. done before. This is now, confusing. <laughs> don't get confused yet because Apple also still has iTunes U, notable by its absence in this whole keynote. But my understanding is also that iTunes U is not being killed. So schoolwork and iTunes U are going to coexist for some amount of time. 
So I th- what I think schoolwork is really for is I think what it's going to do is developers who make apps where, it, let's imagine, for example, an app all about music, right? And it has different kind of chapters. Remember the kind of interactive sort of book-like apps that we got a while ago? I think that's what this is about. Or it might be about apps that do quizzes, or it might be about apps that run standardized tests in an American, specifically an American classroom. And all of these kinds of apps, what they will do when they get updated for ClassKit is they'll take all the content they've got in the app and they will uh, tag or label all of these items, you know, every chapter, every uh, test in every chapter, and they'll all be tagged and, and named. And then a teacher can actually deep link, remotely deep link students into specific parts of these apps. The student will then progress through the content and then the app will actually report the student's progress and or success in tests back to the teacher's app in schoolwork. Mm. So I think that's what this is about, is it's actually about monitoring students' progress through content-based apps or testing-based apps. I don't think this is going to be a general purpose thing that every kind of app will use. So for example, what does it mean for there to be a unit of progress in Keynote? For example, if I set my students a task to, you know, pick a famous computer scientist and give a presentation to the class about that. How, how do I, how does Keynote in, on my behalf yeah. actually define mm. this student has made progress? You know, I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense as even a concept, but these apps where, and you'll notice the kind of apps they showed on the screen were things like Kahoot and Duolingo and apps that have got content and they take you through a program in the app. I think those are the only kind of apps that are really going to adopt ClassKit. So th- I don't think this is a general purpose thing at all. Um, and if I can just read you one paragraph from the Apple developer site, yeah. it says uh, under the heading, define and display assignable content. This is something a developer might do. It says, you'll need to label the content structure of your app so that teachers can find and assign it in schoolwork. Content might include a hierarchy of math challenges and quizzes, coding concepts and exercises, or book chapters. When a student taps an assigned activity in schoolwork, they're taken directly to the corresponding content in your app, end quote. So there's an element of deep linking in there, but there's also showing it to the teacher as well. It feels like um, sort of like a unified dashboard for getting more easily into content uh, available in third-party apps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... It's an extension of a thing that we've we've called in education computer aided instruction, right? And this has been around since like the uh, since computers ever came into schools. The idea that you can encode knowledge in a computer program and students can work through it, and therefore they have learned the content, which is I think is kind of a questionable thing educationally. Uh, I, I'm much more partial myself to the idea that the student uses an app to express their learning. Uh, and that tends to be how we use the iPad in our school, is that you know, kids might read Shakespeare on a paper book, but the iPad is then open for them to create presentation, writing, video, whatever it is, um, that expresses their learning back to the teacher. And that's much harder to quantify in these kind of very mathematical ways. So we'll see how well that gets adopted worldwide. Yeah. I work. There's mm. a major update, version 4, of iWork for iOS. Um, running through the big features here, uh, there's real-time collaboration with Box. 
So if you use Box uh, instead of Dropbox, you can collaborate in real time with other people. I don't use Box. I, I used to have a Box account. I don't anymore. But this is interesting to see. Sort of, it's a, a Box is a very uh, businessy and enterprise type of product. Uh, I struggle to imagine big businesses using pages or numbers <laughs> instead yeah. of Excel. But you know, uh, Microsoft works with Box, and now Apple does too. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, uh, there's a what, what's interesting about that, Federico, is just to say that um, this is uh, that you can do the iCloud real-time collaboration stuff on a platform that's not iCloud. This right. is not this yeah. is not just saving your iWork files onto Box and then opening them from Box because that's already been possible with the iOS 11 Files app integration. This is actually um, live collaboration with people who share your Box account or, or or have a login that shares a particular file in Box. So it's a little deeper than that, and it's interesting that it's only Box and not other platforms that are supporting that. Yeah, it's interesting that that Apple has teamed up with them to bake this right into the iWork apps. Yeah. Uh, other features, one of them currently in beta, um, there's a deeper support for the Apple Pencil. Now, this is surprising to me. I just assumed that the Apple Pencil had already featured um, extensive iWork integration, but it turns out that none it did not. <laughs> no. um, so now you can you can draw in uh, in pages, numbers, and Keynote. Uh, there's a, a few ways that you can do that. I think you, you mostly you need to create specific drawing areas um, in the apps. Yeah. Um, there's also this feature in Beta called Smart Annotation, which seems very clever to me. In Pages, if you uh, you know if you're a teacher and you need to uh, you need to correct uh, a document, you can write on it. But when you do, and if the text reflows, the annotation stays in place and it dynamically mm. follows the the word or the sentence that was annotated. Um, I think this looks terrific. It's a, it's a great idea, but it's currently in beta. And if you use it, Apple tells you, you should probably duplicate your document to make sure <laughs> that you have a backup. <laughs> yeah, that's n never a good thing you want to see come up. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in principle, that, that could be interesting. I think... Um, you know, one of the one of the bigger questions I have about the whole Apple offering is, that's fine once you've got the file to your device, but how do students and teachers share those files? And I think maybe classwork or schoolwork is the answer to that question. I'm not sure, but it's uh, it's one of these things. You know, that's actually becoming more of a question is like student teacher collaboration on documents. And you can see how obviously how that would work in Google Docs, where you know teacher and student would share the file, and you've got comments and versioning and all that kind of stuff inside Google Docs. Um, so, it'd be interesting to see how that works. Um, I want to talk to you because I need to understand what mm. the entire deal with Google and the Chromebooks is. Like, yeah. what is the we talked about the iPad, the Pencil, and uh, all these new systems, uh, Classroom, Schoolwork, ClassKit. What is the problem that Apple is facing in education from a technological point of view, and especially in the US? Um, I think I saw an article a while back that Chromebooks have basically taken over the US school system. So what, what's happening yeah, here? Yeah, I think... If you look at worldwide sales of Chromebooks, you'll see that most of them are sold in America, and of the ones that are sold in America, most of them are sold to schools. Um, very few Chromebooks actually end up in the hands of consumers or businesses at the moment. So it, it seems to be a, a very um, 
uh, education, US education centric phenomenon, but that's not to say it's not, I'm not minimizing it at all. I think it's, it's clearly something that's got a lot of momentum behind it. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for this, Federico, and one of them is to do with the American model of standardized testing, where uh, certain grades all the way through school are, are subjected to a testing regime. And a lot of the work that's done in those year groups is actually orientated much more towards the testing um, because schools are then evaluated on the scores they get in the tests. And in order to administer some of those tests, there are certain technical requirements. Sometimes the tests are online. Some some of them have got apps for iOS. Some of them don't. Um, but there are also things like, for example, um, you're not allowed to use a Bluetooth keyboard or some states have got rules about how big the screen has to be. And I know, um, for example, a few years ago, there was a lot of lobbying done to get the minimum screen size to be 9.7 inches rather than 10 inches because then people could buy an iPad and still comply with the standardized testing regime. So oh. that's that's one part of it, but that, and that's very America-centric. But there, the other part of it is that if you think about a school as a, as a reasonably large enterprise, right, you've got a couple of questions, right? Number one is, well, what is the... What is the end user device that people are going to sit down at? Is it going to be a desktop PC? Is it going to be a Windows laptop? Is it going to be an iPad? Is it going to be a Mac laptop? Is it going to be a Chromebook? The second question is, where? what is our back end and where does, where does it live? And really and truly, every school has a back end. It's either a Microsoft product. It's either an on-premise Active Directory, Exchange Server, uh, storage facility like that or it's a Microsoft's cloud equivalent, Office 365, or it's G Suite. And Apple literally has no product in that category whatsoever. There's no iCloud for schools or iCloud for enterprise that would let you, or, or let you know, take my role as a systems administrator in a school. I sit down at my computer, I log into G Suite admin, I create an account for every pupil in the school, I create an account for every staff member in the school, that's, we've all got enterprise class email, we've got unlimited cloud storage, we've got free and working, um, you know, word processor, presentation package, spreadsheet, you know, everything, everything you need is right there. Whereas Apple has got some parts of that story, but not all of it, right? So Apple have got, okay, there's a, a word processing package, there's an office package, they've got a device, they do have you know, APIs for management and you can buy a management system. That's all fine. But what Apple doesn't have is they don't have a compelling cloud storage offering and they don't own the identity, right? Hmm. So so who owns the identity in my school? Google. Because we're all in a G Suite. Everybody's got a G Suite account. And if you think about it, that's an enormous risk for Apple because can I tell you how much time it would take me to switch to Chromebook? A day. Yeah, and that includes that includes the time to unpack them from the pallets, because all I would need to do is charge those boxes, give them to students, and they know their password, they know their email address, they log in, we're all working, and their files will even be there because we're all in a G Suite. So Apple is sort of at this existential risk here, and I think that's a big, big problem, and that's why I've kind of been arguing for a couple of things. One is that um, Apple needs to have at least make a play for identity management. I don't think they're actually going to do that. In fact, I think they're going the other way because there was some information came out about uh, being able to provision 
Apple School Manager, which is the way you make Apple IDs for schools, to provision that from your Google G Suite. So in fact, Apple's positioning themselves as a subsidiary to Google in terms of identity management in school. The second thing is Apple's problem is that the G Suite iOS apps are pretty weak compared to the power of uh, Google Docs, Google Sheets, Google Slides through a web browser. And this is because an iOS Safari uh, is not compatible with the, the full Google suite of apps in the browser. So you have to kind of get kicked out to the apps and the apps are not very good. They don't have all the same features. They're not as reliable. Uh, they're much harder to use than the desktop versions. So if you want a really great G Suite experience, you're going Chromebook because the Chromebook is perfectly aligned with that. You log into Chromebook, you've got all your stuff. The apps work great. Whereas on iOS, okay, we've got the Google Drive app, which is really nicely integrated, but the Google Docs app is not great. You know, they're they're just not powerful enough. Yeah. And I think that's a risk to Apple as well because so many schools are all in a G Suite. G Suite's actually more important than iOS. And this is why I've often argued that Apple needs to get iOS Safari to a point where no matter what is required, even if you have to put a cursor on it and put a fake trackpad somewhere on the screen, Apple has to get it so that an iPad Pro or a 9.7-inch iPad can log into docs.google.com in Safari and get the same thing that I get on a Mac. And until that happens, Apple's got this incredible risk in education. I think that's a big, big problem for them. Hmm. So when you say identity management, what yeah. do you mean exactly? Because the way that I see it, um, I mean, my iCloud account is my identity in that I yeah. can use it as my Apple ID. It's got my iCloud drive and I can download stuff from the App Store. But the reason why I also need to use Google services is that Apple doesn't give me personally a solution for my business. So I need yeah. to set up my email account for work with my own domain. Mm -hmm. And from that, it follows that I also use Google Docs and I also use uh, Google Drive. Um, I would love to have some kind of iCloud at work product that allows me yeah. to set up my business with, with, um, with iCloud. But I, uh, such a service does not exist. But for a school, I don't yeah. understand what the identity of a student really is. Well, at its most basic, it's the student's email address, right? So if I want to share a file in my school G Suite with a student or with another teacher, all I do is I click the share button and I start typing their name. And because everybody's in the same directory of users, it starts to autocomplete from other people in my school. So I don't have to go and ask them to, hey, what's your Apple ID? Right? And this, this is, is how... not possible with, the, with iCloud? Nope. No. Oh not my god. <laughs> no. Really? No. No, here's how it works. If I want if I wanted to do document collaboration with a student in iCloud, I would have to, you know, speak to that student and say, um, what's your managed Apple ID? First of all, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Secondly, they've forgotten it because they never use it. And that is terrible. And, and but but worse than this Federico, right? There are there's no concept of groups in Apple School Manager. So say I wanted to share a folder in my class with a class. Right. All I would need to do is say S1 at Cedars, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Share it with them. Then everybody in that group has already got access to the folder. So now we're away and working straight away. Whereas on iCloud, not only do I have to find out what their managed Apple IDs are, I then have to invite them one by one to the document. And then Seriously? I have to do, uh, yeah. And then I have to do that for every document 
I ever want to work with, right? Because there is no idea, there is absolutely no concept in iCloud of a folder shared amongst, even between two users or a group of users. Right? Oh God. All of, yeah. all of okay. iCloud collaboration is person to person on a per document basis. There's oh, no persistent terrible. folder-based workflow. So you see why I'm saying that there's, there's a backend and it's either Microsoft yes. or Google. Yes. And, and we're only just accessing it through iOS devices. And the more that that collaboration becomes important, the more you look at iOS in school and you go, actually, I'm kind of working around this to get to my Google Drive. Why don't I just use the computers that are the best for the system that I completely depend on all the way through school? And that's oh, the kind I, of thought yeah. process that people are, are, are starting to have in education about iOS. No, I totally understand now. I didn't. I, I was not aware of those limitations, and now that you describe them, it sounds like a complete nightmare. Having that's to why you share, don't use it. you know, we're we're, <laughs> the, we're like the original iPad school, and we're not doing any collaboration in iCloud. It's all Google Drive, because that works in iCloud, just missing fundamental features. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Yeah. Um. So, that's the technical part. I yeah. I should say that I don't understand this. Um, area because i'm not a teacher and i'm not a student i don't work in a school but i this apple event went by and i have this feeling of it it gives me the same taste in my mouth of the old ipad your verse campaign mm -hmm. that it feels It's, it sounds beautiful, right? This idea of these beautiful schools with children doing arts, uh, programming drones, and you know, taking photography classes, mm -hmm. and they have these modern computers. But it feels idealistic, almost, and to me, almost elitist in mm -hmm. a way. Because I, I come from a public school background of. Our, and I talked about this on Connected uh, with Mike and Steven this week. Our desks and our chairs were broken sometimes because mm -hmm. our schools they our, our school didn't have the funds to even repaint repaint the walls occasionally because the government wasn't giving them any more yeah. money than necessary. Uh, and I struggled to imagine my school being able to get everybody an iPad and a pencil and then downloading all these AR kit apps from the app store. It just mm -hmm. feels maybe aspirational could be a word for it, but yeah. it, it doesn't feel realistic to me. And I, mm -hmm. and I can shake this feeling that what Apple wants to do is beautiful, but it doesn't feel practical at all. Yeah, I mean, Federico, let me tell you what I feel about that, right? Which is that my first and most fundamental belief is that the non-affordability of computers for schools is a political decision, not a financial reality, right? Yeah. Every, every developed country in the world can trivially afford to give every pupil in their schools a computer for their own use. And it could even be an iPad, right? It's, it's not that we as nations in the West, okay, developing countries, different story, but in the developed world, we can all afford to do this. And the fact that we appear not to be able to afford to do it is a purely political decision. Absolutely. That, yeah. that we've got the money in a world where we can build spaceships and we can build nuclear weapons, we can buy every student a computer and we can buy every student a cello and we can buy them all a trumpet and they can play them all and they can all keep them and we wouldn't yeah. even move the needle on our economies in any way. So that's my that's my first point is that this is a political decision that we can't afford it. We actually can't afford it. We just choose not to. 
Secondly, though, the question, you know, when it comes down to the level of a school, um, schools, it varies across the world, but many schools have got certain money to play with and they can control certain priorities. Certainly private schools, independent schools like my own, uh, we have much more leeway, but at the same time, we don't get any government money. It works differently in different countries, but in Scotland, independent schools don't get any government funds at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, you look at a school at ours and you say, oh, well, it's fine for private schools, they've got iPads. I'm like, yeah, but we don't have, you know, a 3G football pitch at the back, like many state schools do. So we've prior- we've made a strategic decision to prioritise one kind of investment over another kind of investment. And other schools have made other decisions like that as well. So lots of things cost a lot of money. A friend of mine in a local school, they've actually just built a new school building. And he found out, as they were moving schools, how much they were paying for filing cabinets in his classroom. And they were paying £350 for a single filing cabinet. So, you know, <laughs> look at that and look at the cost of supplier contracts to schools and don't tell me that iPads are too expensive because everything sold to schools is too expensive because people look at schools, they look at government funds and they go, I'll have some of that. And everything doubles in price, triples in price before it gets sold to a school. So that's that's really my second point is that everything is a priority decision as well. Is it more expensive than an AstroTurf pitch? Is it more important to your students than an AstroTurf pitch? Is it more important than a classroom refurbishment? These are all decisions that schools have to make. But the main competitor is, of course, Chromebook. So then you look at Chromebook and you say, well, how much cheaper is a Chromebook actually than an iPad? And I think a representative example, Chromebooks in the UK are sort of between 200 and 250 pounds. You can certainly get cheaper Chromebooks, but you've got to think about durability as well. I've heard of schools who've done and did Android tablet deployments and they were having like uh, 40 to 60% failure rates on their devices because they had gone for the absolute cheapest thing they could find. We hit 1% to 4% failure rate on our iPads. So that's something you've got to factor in. When you're looking at a whole school deployment and you're looking at large numbers of devices and major rollout and major support, you've got to look at numbers like that as well. So really and truly what I find is that you can you can buy five iPads or you can buy six Chromebooks for the same kind of money. You know, that's the kind of difference you're talking about. It's not it's not that you can have one iPad or you can have 10 Chromebooks. It's not that kind mm-hmm. of differential. It's five iPads or six Chromebooks, okay? So, you know, you're talking about maybe saving £1,500 on a set of 30 devices. And then you think, well, okay, what kind of capabilities does the iPad have? What kind of capabilities does a Chromebook have? Okay, Chromebook's great for Google Docs, that's fine. But for example, the iPad, every one of them comes on the back with a 1080p video camera and an 8 megapixel still camera. So then you're like, well, okay, where am I getting that capability from my classroom for every student? Am I going to go and buy a you know, camera for every student? And then you've got a management cost on top of that, an organizational cost, blah, 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 blah. And that's your saving gone right there just to replace that one feature that an, an iPad doesn't have, has that a Chromebook doesn't have. And you, you can play this game all different ways, right? But the point right. I want to make is that we have had now computers that have been £100, right? You can go and buy an Android tablet for £100. You can get an Amazon Fire tablet for like £30, right? And we still haven't gone one-to-one with Amazon Kindle Fire tablets in every school in the world. I don't actually believe there's any price that will make every school go one-to-one. Even if the computers were literally free, 
there would still be some schools that wouldn't do it. So I think it's actually much more of a priorities decision than it is purely a financial decision. Because I've worked with schools in very, very, very poor areas who have, you know, bled every stone dry and parents have queued up around the block to sign payment programs to get iPads for their students because they see access to modern technology and the internet as being really important to the life chances of those young people. And I've worked with I've worked with the highest end schools in the world and they can't get it done because they can't make a decision or because they can't do it organizationally or perhaps more often because they're very high performing schools and they will not do anything that will disrupt that flow of good exam results that they know how to get down to the last, you know, cross of an, a T and dot of an I. They don't want to risk that at all. So even the highest performing schools, some of them can't get this done either. So it's not just about money. It's about organisational priorities overall. Hmm. Does that answer yeah. your question? <laughs> I don't know, it's quite a random. Yeah, it, but, it, it yeah, does. Uh, but I want yeah. to talk about the... Of what Apple is pushing, the idea of you get the iPad because it's got the best apps and the best ecosystem. Yeah. And I want to know does does that matter ultimately that you you can use photography apps and you can you can you can you know use Swift playgrounds and you can use mm-hmm. ARKit? Um, how does is that? Do you really find valuable? And I mean, I guess your answer is yes because you have a one to one iPad de- iPad deployment, but yeah. Um, do you understand my, my point of view? Uh, no, I, 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 I completely get it, yeah. And and I, I think, you know, I, I look at Chromebook every year and I go, should we be at Chromebook yet? And every year I sort of say, not quite. But one of, the, one of the models that is becoming increasingly common, and I'm increasingly partial to this model, is that from uh, the early years of primary school through to the middle years of secondary school, those are the iPad years. And then when you get into senior secondary school, uh, some kind of laptop, either a Chromebook or a MacBook or a Windows laptop of some kind for this sort of final four years where you're doing all your exam work and stuff. And I'm sort of increasingly partial to that idea because what I find at that upper part of the school is that um, the, the curriculum there is very constrained because it's usually set by the government, it's usually set by the exam board, and you really can't do anything about it. It's, it is what it is. Um, so that's a model that a lot of schools are starting to adopt, is a split model, whereas iPads in younger years, because of the ease of use, the compelling applications, particularly for younger users, the engaging applications, you know, we do things like um, apps that help you learn to tell a time. We do things like... Um, you know, like a magnet board, you know, the magnet alphabet you used to put on the fridge. There are apps that do that and kids can rearrange words and we, we get all kinds of literacy outcomes from those kind of things that are very helpful. Um, and then you've got things like the things Apple shows, right? You know, we do Swift Playgrounds in our school. We do um, a lot of digital art in our school. We do all that kind of stuff, a lot of presentation skills as well. And that's kind of in the middle years of schooling. But then admittedly, when we get up to those last four years of secondary school, I don't see those kids doing a lot in our school except keynote and pages. And I, I look at that and I go, would could we get an easier workflow there that just involves Chromebooks and Google Docs? Could that work? Still a question mark in my mind. Do you think it's a matter of idealism versus uh, being pragmatic? The, this difference between Apple and Google? Um, it, it can be, yeah. I, I think that Google have taken a very like an extremely pragmatic approach. And they're they're looking at schools and they're going, what do schools currently do with computers? Right. Let's sell them a computer that does exactly that, but it's ours. 
And that has been devastatingly effective, right? Because in truth, the, the consequence of changing your curriculum to be much more like what Apple showed on stage, it's a very hard job organizationally. Um, it requires a lot of commitment from teachers and it requires a lot of support from senior management and school boards and parents. And getting all of that together is very difficult. But you could take somebody's Windows, Dell laptop and give them a Chromebook and you wouldn't even have to tell anybody you'd done it. Nobody would notice, right? So it's a, it's an organizationally a much more easy thing to do to go from Windows to Chromebook than it is to go from anything to iPad. You know, when you go to iPad, everybody knows about it. Oh my goodness, tell me about that. Everybody knows about it. The TVs are going to be there. The newspaper's going to criticize you for buying luxury products, blah, 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 blah. Right. But you could just give somebody a Chromebook and not tell anybody and nobody would even notice and that's fine. So so I can totally get why people are doing that as well. Um, so yeah, there's hard pragmatism from Google. There's a lot of idealism from Apple. In fact, I, I would probably agree with you there's probably too much because what Apple are not really addressing is that kind of hardcore back-end stuff that schools need as little enterprises to get the whole thing up and running. Uh, and they're really seeding that whole world to Google quite easily. All right. Well, this was really useful. I, I finally understand why you were uh, you were tweeting about Google and why it was really not about the hardware, but more about the software and the backend. I, I, I feel like... about I, that, yeah. I needed those examples because now, now that you told me like exactly the things that you cannot do with iCloud, it sounds t t terrible. Just <laughs> honestly, <laughs> even from from my perspective, yeah. it sounds horrific that you would need to go through those hoops. Uh, and now I totally understand why uh, G Suite yeah. is much yeah. much more compelling uh, for for schools. I mean, Google just rolled out a thing called um, Google Hangouts Chat, which is basically Google's Slack clone for G Suite. But the thing is, I'm already using that with teachers because on day one it came out, I turned it on for my teacher group in Google Admin, I pushed out the app to their iPads and phones, and that day we were in Slack-like Slack -like groups using this G Chat system because it was all built in. There was no new account to create. I didn't have to really train anybody on it. I just said, in fact, on iOS, you're already logged into this because you're logged into Google Drive on the same device. Just open this up. I'll send you a message. We'll start chatting. And that was it. And now we're using it. And see, that's the kind of foothold that Google has, even in my school, right? I, I invented iPads in schools, right? I was the first guy ever to do it. And we're the most experienced iPad school in the world. And Google can just drop a new thing like that. And we're all using it because they own that identity. And that, to me, is the big, the big issue yeah. for Apple. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Okay. I mean, don't let's, let's not end on a downer, right? We've got a great new iPad, new features, uh, all that new stuff coming in iWork as well. But I think uh, there's still a bigger picture that Apple has to think about, and, and I hope to see them do that quite soon. I'm not saying I expect to see them do it quite soon. I'm saying I hope to see them do it quite soon. That's a different <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Federico, well, we'll leave it there for today. I think that's uh, that's us being over yeah. the... We've picked the bones clean on that show. Uh, yes. And we, we can hope, keep our fingers crossed, that Apple will have another education event for us to talk about much sooner than 2024, which is... <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> on, a long on, time away. <laughs> on past experience, that's when the next one's going to be, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, but this has been Canvas episode 57, talking about new iPads and Apple's education event. You can find the show notes for the show at relay.fm slash canvas slash 57. You can connect with the show on Twitter. The show is underscore canvas FM. 
I am Fraser Spears on Twitter. Federico is Vitici, and we'll see you all next show. <laughs>